Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, uh, we have written, you hear this all the time, probably three dozen cookbooks, I don't know, a lot, including the Instant Pot Bible and the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, a book written so that every single recipe is sized out for either appliance. In the Instant Pot Bible, every recipe is sized out for every size of Instant Pot. And in the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, every recipe is sized out for every size of air fryer. We love air fryers. We love air fryers. Uh, We love all these appliance gadgets, apparently. But we're not talking about any of that, really, Mm -hmm. in this podcast, although we are talking about a gadget. It's coming up. (laughs) We're going to actually talk about this concept of dry January and how it started and what's going on with it. we got our one-minute cooking tip. We have a great interview coming up, and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Dry January, well, the concept originated in the UK in 2013. How can the people who invented gin invent dry January? That doesn't make any sense. These are also the people that that, invented warm beer. You know that's fighting words with the Danes and the Norwegians who invented gin. Them are fighting words. Okay, but but they did invent warm beer, and so that's (laughs) disgusting. So a nonprofit in the I'm going to tell you that that's fighting words with the Germans, but go on. (laughs) A nonprofit in the UK called Alcohol Change UK started the concept of Dry January in 2013 with a goal of raising money. And I'm not sure how Dry January raising money happened, but that was a probably had to sign into something. But they did it to raise money for alcohol abuse awareness and treatment. A very very good cause. Yeah, and a lot of people choose to take part in dry in January as a way to simply drink less or reset for a month or two after all the holidays. And let me tell I you. I know, the holidays, man. Oh, man. Let me tell you that I drank like a fish over the holidays with Bruce's family and my family. I mean, Bruce says that at one point that my brother-in-law and I, Bruce's sister's husband and I, at one point were just like two drunk old men in a bar sitting at a table saying, oh, let's have another glass. And you like, were. And was, then we came home for New Year's Eve and we drank, we were with friends and all of us drank a case of champagne, which was really nice. <laughs> not, not quite a case, but okay. Okay, seven bottles. Seven bottles for five people. That's it was a lot. It was really headache time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people want to uh, reset. Uh, listen, I'm doing this too. Want to reset after the holidays. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm doing particularly dry January, but I certainly... I'm very conscious now of cutting way back. I'm in. doing a drier January. How's yeah, that? a drier I'm, January. I'm, I'm only so, drinking a few times a week. According to the American Heart Association, a 2022 national survey, and I assume that this is in the United States, showed that upwards of 35% of American adults of legal drinking age did, in fact, try out dry January last year. Now That's that, huge. That's huge. I wonder how many of that 35% um, made it to the end of January. Yeah, they didn't report that. They only wanted to know how many people attempted to do this. And, and also, I have to tell you, I'm being now the skeptical PhD student that I once was, when I look at this and see upwards of 35%, because 1% is upwards of 35%. So I don't know exactly what upwards of 35% well, that, means. God, that reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Lisa Simpson is out on some tour of some factory, and a woman's like, a percentage of all of our profits go to saving wildlife and Lisa's like what percentage and the woman's like 
Rosa percent. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly my point here. It, you know, I don't know what that means, but I do know that dry January is a thing, and I do see it on social media. I see it on TikTok. I see it on Instagram. I see people uh, engaging with the practice, and it's really not a bad practice. It's not. And Anna Hat O'Connor is a health columnist for the Washington Post. And what is reported there is that people see tangible benefits of not drinking for the month, everything from saving money to having more energy to sleeping better. And yeah. saving money is a huge thing. It is. I mean, Alcohol is expensive. It is. I it's, think it's a luxury. Um, it might be a luxury. I mean, yes, I know that there is very cheap alcohol and cheap wine available. Okay, good alcohol is a luxury. Then. Well, uh, yeah, and and I'm and I hope because I do this, you're not talking. $90 bottles of bourbon, but $35 bottles of bourbon. That's a luxury. And it's a luxury, and it's expensive. And yes, it's better than the $8 bourbon, because I drink bourbon straight with just a little water in it. So I'm not mixing it in a cocktail. Mixing it in a cocktail, to me, is a whole different game it is. at you, that point. You... Now listen, Bruce has this theory. Wait, before Bruce is going to say something, but I want to say Bruce had this thing he always says that no amount of fruit juice <laughs> can cover up the taste of bad alcohol. Because bad alcohol is bad alcohol. And despite the fact that ethanol is ethanol, the part that gets you drunk, right. but there's only 40% of that in an 80-proof bottle of vodka. So 60% of it is other stuff. Right. And that other stuff is what makes it taste bad. But in terms of it being a luxury and saving and money... Whether there's burn. Yeah, right? whether, exactly. All that stuff. So the luxury part, think about even if you just drink a bottle of beer a night. Let's say you do that and it's, and it's an inexpensive beer. Let's say you paid $1.50 right. for that bottle of beer a okay. night. That's 365 times $1.50. Well, I don't have the calculator right in my head, but that's upwards of $480, $500 right there just from upwards one of. bottle of beer. So now if you drink a bottle of wine a night or if you have other cocktails, drinking can be expensive. So I do see the benefit of saving some money as well as getting some better sleep. Yes, and the American Heart Association also points out that there are short-term benefits from abstaining from alcohol, and they include lower blood pressure, because here's the thing, and you probably know this already if you drink, that alcohol actually lowers your blood pressure at the start of when you're drinking, but then because it so dehydrates you and because of other factors involved, your blood pressure actually goes up dramatically after you've drunk. So there's an initial lowering of blood pressure and then there's a spike uh, several hours later. You might know this if you've drunk a little too much and wake up in the middle of the night with your heart racing. It's that problem of the blood pressure is going up because you're coming kind of on the backside of the alcohol intake. And of course, there are improvements with insulin resistance, weight loss, sleep. I mean, listen. Oh, weight loss. Again, let's go back to that $1.50 bottle of beer. It's about 200 calories. So even over the 30 days, so 200 times 30, we're talking about 6,000 calories. Right. That's a lot of calories you saved that month. That's right. And uh, listen, there are a lot of reasons to get back on alcohol intake. But you know what? You can do dry January without, as Bruce has already said, without doing dry January. You can do dry year. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm doing. January. And I do like that some of the big alcohol brands say they're getting behind this and they're supporting this, which yeah. is really nice, except... Mm -hmm. 
I don't believe it because Tito's made a huge, big marketing campaign that, oh, we are getting behind Dry January. And I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling through Facebook videos the other day, and I see this ad pop up with Martha Stewart, and she's got Tito's vodka. And she's talking about Dry January. What should I do with all this Tito's vodka? So she puts it in a spray bottle, and she's cleaning her counters with it. Oh, she, give me a break. She mists her plants with it, but then as she's misting it, she's licking the air. And then at the very end, she looks at the camera and she says, oh, f*** it, Martha needs a martini. Yeah, in other words, they're making fun of Dry January. Yeah, they were. And so, so I, that really irritated me. It does irritate me. I think that Dryer January is really a great idea. I don't know that Dry January is necessarily for everybody listening. If you have an issue with alcohol, of course, Dry January is a fabulous way to figure out your problem with alcohol. Here's what I think. And here's what I really think is important for January to make drier January work for you is be very conscious about drinking. And I find, and I know this is very silly and you're going to think I'm insane, but I find it's really interesting to say aloud, not just in your head, aloud, I'm having a drink Every time you have a drink, it reminds you, even if, you know, okay, like, let's say I pour myself a bourbon and then I want a little more to say out loud, I'm having a drink on that second pour actually helps me reduce the pour. And it actually helps me kind of pull back and think, wait, do I really need another drink? So be conscious yeah. of your drinking. Be conscious. And also use a measuring cup. Use a jigger so you know how much you're drinking. When we freehand it, we tend to always give ourselves a little more than we might want. So there are ways to cut down on this. And the other thing is cold turkey isn't always right for everyone. No. So if you're considering doing this now, even though January is almost over. Talk to your doctor if you think it might be a problem going cold turkey. Right. That's what, prohibition doesn't work. No. How long things doesn't work. I mean, saying you can't do something just doesn't work because your psyche will eventually snap back to say, no, I must. Because the rebellion instinct will take over and you'll eventually be back in it. So don't do that. Make smaller changes. Articulate that you're drinking. Say, I'm having a drink. I'm yep. having a glass of wine. Think about it. Do it consciously. Don't just go back into the kitchen and pour another glass of wine. Think about it. I, I talk about this all the time with Bruce, and it's, uh, it was one last thing. I talk about this all the time with Bruce, and it kind of amazed me. When I was a kid growing up now, I realized that I was born before the crust of the earth hardened, and I realized I'm ancient. But when I was a kid growing up on television – People didn't drink. I mean, you know, the the cleavers sat down and they drank ugh, milk with dinner. That's disgusting. No, it was Bewitched that really started it. Bewitched was the show where everybody drank all the time, they and it was sort of groundbreaking that people they drank in the office. It was like Mad Men. Yeah. Well, they. I mean, listen. It's not to say that people never drink. Lucy got drunk. Um, but as that, a joke. Right. And, and and Laura Petrie got drunk. I mean, it's not that people never drank. It's that they didn't drink casually the way they do now. And now when I watch HBO or we stream Amazon Prime, some series, you know, we're always watching some unbelievable beheading crime <laughs> dismemberment thing from Norway. Everyone drinks. <laughs> and it's unbelievable. The ex expectation is everybody walks in 
home from whatever they're doing, the detective, whoever it is, walks in and instantly pours a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. And there's an open bottle of wine on the counter, and everybody's just pouring it, pouring it, pouring it, pouring it, walking around with this glass of wine. And first of all, I think it's a very lazy actorly tick because it gives the actors something to do with their hands. But secondly, it makes this idea that somehow you have to walk in and have a drink. It does. It's, it sets that it's, it's up. So, that this is what we should be doing. And I am a guy who loves wine, and I love beer, and you know I love bourbon. So I'm not being anti-alcohol. Nope. I'm just saying that it sets this crazy precedent that I've walked home, I've walked in my door, and where's the wine? Nobody ever walks in and opens a Diet Coke. They don't. Nobody no. ever walks in and puts up a pot of coffee. Or makes themselves a latte. Or, or gets a seltzer. No. Or, or, or yeah, opens some bottled water. Or no. goes over to a soda stream and, and you know, makes no. a, 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 a pitcher of sparkly water. Nobody ever no. does that. They walk in and there's they, they always are just uncorking. And then they sit around drinking all, for, you know, the entire evening. And I'm like, who does this? Well, it also makes horrible continuity problems. Because in one scene, the glass is full. The next scene, the glass is half full. The next shot, the glass is empty. And so no one pays attention to how much wine's actually in their glass. It does. It's really a thing. And I think it's it's also part of lazy acting. Oh, there's my judgment on the roll. (laughs) Because, again, a glass of wine in a hand gives an actor something to do with that hand. And it gives the actor some way to express an emotion by how they move the glass and all that kind of stuff. Whereas they're not having to completely rely on their body to do it. It's... It's a whole thing. It's kind of taken over TV, and once you see it, you can't unsee it anymore. And no, again, now you will see it all I just time. want to say You're again, welcome. I'm a guy who likes a bottle of wine, so it's not that I'm opposed to any of this. It's just that I'm kind of curious about how it became so. What wine industry rep sold Hollywood on the idea? Oh, that's really good. That Probably, yeah. Everybody should do this. Okay, before we get to our next segment of the podcast. We'd love you to rate the podcast. We'd love you to subscribe to it. It would be fantastic if you did that. It would be fabulous if, in rating, you dropped a comment on the podcast. That would be great. But in any event, thank you for being on this podcast with us. As we've said a million times, we are unsupported so that we can say exactly what we want about wine representatives in Hollywood or the American (laughs) Heart Association or the New York Times. We don't have to watch our mouths, which is really nice up next our one minute cooking tip break out your waffle iron i'm sure you have one sitting in the back of a closet it's sitting in a cabinet take it out not to make waffles but you can use it for so many things Mm. you can use it instead of a panini press Mm -hmm. to make a sandwich Mm -hmm. you could take two pieces of really nice bread butter the outsides put a piece of chocolate between the breads and make yourself a hot crispy chocolate pocket Mm. you could do so much you could take a piece of puff pastry and shove it in the waffle iron and just make a crispy crunchy dessert you can even make eggs you don't have to take out a pan you scramble an egg you heat up your waffle iron you pour it into the waffle iron it's a super easy way to make an omelet I have to tell you, especially if you use nonstick spray on a mm-hmm. waffle iron, it is a super easy way to make omelets. We have an entire chapter on using a waffle iron as a shortcut tool in our book, The Kitchen Shortcut Bible. And it really kind of blew my mind about everything that we could do from making cauliflower, savory cauliflower waffles to omelets to paninis. It's a great shortcut tool in your kitchen. Up next, 
Bruce's interview with our friend Nicolette Nyman, who we met years ago when, when we, we were, were writing yeah. a goat book. And she's the author of Defending Beef, which is now out in a revised edition. Bruce has got a great interview with Nicolette coming up. Today, I'm speaking with Nicolette Han Nyman, attorney, rancher, and an advocate for sustainable food production and improved farm animal welfare. She is the author of Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Hey, Nicolette, welcome. Hello, thank you. It's good to be here. Your book, Defending Beef, pretty much makes us rethink everything we've been taught to believe is wrong with raising and eating beef. I have to start with, why is that important to you? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I hope it does do that, because <laughs> that was definitely my goal. If we think of the grazing animals on the land and on our plates as something that's just expendable, you know, that we could just get rid of it and there won't be any downs to it. Why not? Why not just do that? You know, in the state, you know, on the side of caution, let's just get rid of, let's just get rid of beef and cattle. And then we don't have to worry about the, you know, the problems associated with them anymore. The problem with that approach, and I might have actually thought that was not such a bad idea, you know, when I started all of this 20 years ago, but the more I've learned, the more I've worked on it, and the more I have lived and been part of a ranch and gotten to know many ranching and farming people around the world, the more I have come to believe very fervently that the grazing animals play a unique, and I would even say indispensable ecological role. So they, we really need to have them on the landscape. And beef is not just delicious and wonderful food, but it's also extremely nourishing. And it's the kind of food that we need more of. There needs to be more real food, more deeply nourishing food, you know, fewer processed foods, fewer chemicals in our food system. And I think and we've kind of moved our diet in the wrong direction in the industrialized parts of the world, at least. And so it's it's a very important subject and one that I think we've just gotten it so wrong. Well, the overall premise of your book is that cattle are good for the environment, and we'll get to that in a minute, but also that beef, that butter, that cheese are healthy foods. So let's start there, since that runs counter to what most of us have been told the past few decades why shouldn't we avoid red meat and dairy? Well, I think there are two key parts to this. First of all, we've had several decades of information that we've all been exposed to suggesting that it's bad for us. And I think that's basically wrong. But the other part of it is that what I was just saying about the need for nourishing real food and more of that and less of so much of the kind of convenience food, processed food, fast food, you know, energy bars, you know, all the things that people are eating more and more of now, you know, more and more processed foods. So beef kind of is, is this really important food in terms of its nourishment and the nutrients that it provides and the quality of the nutrients it provides. But also the arguments against it are basically wrong. We had this idea that kind of emerged in the middle of the 20th century from certain scientific research that was being done and certain things that were being said in the, you know, sort of the public health arena and the medical arena that heart disease and especially heart attacks and heart disease, all the problems related to heart health, but also other health problems were increasingly believed to be linked to saturated fat mm. and maybe other aspects of red meat, but there was a lot of focus on saturated fat. We've also, of course, heard a lot about cholesterol in the second half of the 20th century and 
things like eggs, you know, in addition to red meat. Those were all foods that we began to believe increasingly because of things that were coming out in the mainstream media were bad for us, even though these were foods that had been eaten by humans, you know, literally kind of since time immemorial. So there was a dramatic sort of rise in heart attacks and other sort of diet related diseases in the mid 20th century. So they were looking, you know, people were looking at the public health community and the medical community for explanations. And one thing that actually really surprised me, I didn't know this until I did the research for this book. There were actually a number of competing theories that were kind of emerging from medical and public health experts And the idea that this was really attributed to saturated fat was kind of one idea. Mm -hmm. And there were other ideas, one of them being the idea that the rise in processed foods and especially the addition of sugar and the greater percentage of diet that's that's from sugar Mm -hmm. was another one of the competing theories. And the thing that really surprised me in my research was to find that the idea of saturated fat actually being the culprit and then primary problem in the modern diet was kind of it kind of won the day from a number of kind of reasons that are really not scientific (laughs) that's not to say there was no scientific basis for it but the reason that that argument became the prevailing paradigm are not based on science and so what's been happening in the last couple of decades is there's been a really serious re-examination of how that idea came to you know sort of be so widely accepted there's been a lot of re-examination of the initial studies and the subsequent studies and even though there seemed to be some some suggestion in the research for a long time that saturated fat and cholesterol were contributing to diet related diseases, I believe that the consensus has shifted pretty dramatically and that there's a pretty widespread acceptance now, especially among younger practitioners, people that are, you know, in their 70s and 80s that practiced medicine or public health for a long time under these ideas are not necessarily ready to give those up. But there's a lot of evidence that now suggests that when you have saturated fat, that's basically non-oxidized and it's not in processed foods, and it's just basically whole real foods, things like butter and eggs and fat that's found in whole pieces of meat, that there's nothing inherently unhealthy about those foods. And in fact, there's a whole line of diet studies and and writing that suggest that they're actually an essential component in the diet, partly because they add to how satiated we feel when we eat. And so they help prevent overeating. And so when when all of this has been sort of re-examined, I, and I go through it in a lot of detail in the book in terms of the specific studies, but that's kind of a summary of what's happened on that side of the question. So let's go back for a second to mid 20th century when that idea that saturated fats were the culprit and there were other ideas coming on, but that's the one that caught on. Were those political reasons? Why do you think that was the culprit that was named? What I sort of believe happened and what I theorize and the, you know, the case that I build in the book is that there was a a kind of a battle between certain individuals that were arguing the different theories and the theory that was the sugar idea, which was coming from probably a number of different quarters, but in particular from a, a physician named Dr. Yudkin in, in the UK, in England. He was a prominent, very well-respected medical researcher who became increasingly persuaded that sort of processed foods and a particular sugar, it was the primary culprit in the rise in a lot of diet related diseases. And what ended up happening to him is quite 
Amazing. It's really reminiscent of the initial attempts to try to regulate tobacco. There was a very deliberate attempt to discredit him and the sugar industry itself got very well organized and they tried to marginalize him personally and to try to prevent his research from being discussed and try to get him uninvited from conferences. And in fact, they did succeed in this to a large degree and tried to prevent publishing of his work. So there's been a lot about that lately that's been written in, and people like Robert Lustig at USF who are trying to expose the danger of sugar are, are talking a lot about his work and the fact that he was kind of a pioneer in this, but his voice was basically you know, squelched based on on the money and the power behind the sugar lobby and the industry, right. just as early attempts to, you know, expose the danger of tobacco, very right. same kind of playbook. Right. And then you had, on the other hand, Ansel Keys, who wrote this very famous seven countries study, which seemed to show that in those countries where people ate the most saturated fat, there was the most heart disease. So it was like a really simple idea of correlating these two things. There's been a tremendous amount of research and analysis of that initial work and subsequent works in the last couple of decades showing that there really isn't a very strong connection. And in fact, that that he had actually begun with a much larger body of data from 22 countries, and he deliberately pared it down to seven countries because he wanted to show a strong correlation. And if you included all of those countries, there would have been almost no correlation at all. Wow. And so the subsequent, you know, analysis sort of epidemiological research and also the clinical work that's been done for decades now trying to show this link is pretty, pretty weak. And in fact, there's a lot of counter research now. And some of the, I think, most most important research is some of the studies that have shown if you take out the processed meats, mm -hmm. so things like, let's say, deli meats and bacon and ham, even though those things are delicious, <laughs> you know, many of those things have a lot of added ingredients. And of course, yeah. there's a lengthy process that happens to those meats in the preparation. And so if you take those out because very few meat studies do that. Mm. Uh, when you do that, the the correlation between meat and any diet related diseases entirely vanishes. So to me, that kind of thing is extremely compelling in suggesting that we've really gone down a, you know the wrong path altogether in the way we've looked at this issue from a health standpoint. Now let's talk about cattle being good for the environment. Your numbers add up to the fact that there are only slightly more cattle today than for much of the past century. So expressions like overgrazing sound more like fear-mongering than fact. Is that true? Yeah. I start out the book just kind of going through some of the some of the actual data as far as the numbers of animals and also the amount of these foods that we're consuming. Because there's there's a kind of a, you know, again, sort of popular narrative that we're eating more red meat, we're eating more eggs, we're eating more butter, you know, just more saturated fat, and that we're having a rise in all these diet-related diseases. And also this correlates to lots more of these farm animals on the landscape and kind of causing all this environmental damage. Mm. Well, the reason that it's so important to just look at the raw data is that that story in and of itself is kind of a house of cards because when you look at the numbers of cattle, for example, on the land, it's slightly higher today than it was, let's say a hundred years ago, but not much. And the reason for that is because even though we're producing a lot more meat and we're producing a lot more milk today, you know, as a nation, 
But the reason the numbers are not dramatically greater in terms of the actual numbers of cattle in inventory is because the numbers of dairy cattle have gone down dramatically. The reason for that is increased production per animal. And I actually have some real concerns about the, you know, how far that's been pushed, sure. but that's just the reality of it. There have, there are far fewer dairy cattle today in the land than there were a hundred years ago because each individual animal produces about six times more milk. So a great deal more milk. Again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, you know, that breeding to that extreme. And I have real concerns about that, but we are in fact having a lot fewer dairy cattle because of that. And then the number of beef cattle in the in the United States has increased but not as much as people think so it's so if you add up all the cattle together in the United States it's slightly more I think it's something like 20 percent more total so it's a lot smaller of an increase than people tend to think and when you actually look at all of the farm animals together so if you include sheep goats bison pigs and except for poultry, because those are small animals that are, you know, kept in buildings and they are raised in huge numbers. The numbers of poultry have increased dramatically in the last, you know, century, or especially the last half, half century. But the, if you added all the sort of large farm animals that people believe have a large ecological impact, the numbers have actually declined. So because, and that's because the numbers of sheep have gone way down. I mentioned the number of dairy cows have gone way down. We also have fewer mules, oxen, horses, you know, all these animals that used to be used for work on farms and still are in other parts of the world, but not that much in the U.S. So if you think of sort of like the mass of farm animals on the landscape in the U.S., that has actually declined. Hmm. So these are just really important facts for people to think about when they're talking about this issue. And then similarly on the dietary side, we see that there was kind of a peak of red meat consumption in the mid 20th century, but that's actually been going down for quite some time. And the total number of eggs that people eat is lower. The total amount of saturated fat that people eat from animals is down about 20% over a century ago. You know, so all of these numbers show that this a sort of popular myth that, you know, we're eating more animals, we're raising more animals, we're getting sicker. It's just not true. So that, you know, you can just start right out by saying, <laughs> forget those ideas. They're wrong. And you give us those points that we're eating less meat to begin with, yet as a nation, our health is not necessarily improving. So clearly something else is going on. And as you say, all the processed food definitely is a problem. And when it comes to beef, I mean, that's real food. It's very nourishing and satiating too. So part of what I've sort of gotten more and more intrigued by in the last, you know, several years, as I thought a lot about this stuff is, and as I've been reading, and I've read a lot of books about all this stuff, and people like Gary Taubes and Nina Teichholz, who, who they just so compellingly, you know, present this idea that because we've taken so much of the good fat and protein based on animal based foods out of the diet, mm -hmm. or, you know, we've de-emphasized it, we've sort of pushed it to the side of the plate, we've told people again and again, you know, <laughs> pasta to me is a good example. If you're eating a lot of pasta and you're putting, you know, like, and I used to do this myself when I was a vegetarian, you'd put a big pile of pasta on the plate and then like a little bit of sauce, you know? And what I've realized is if you have a good, healthy meat sauce that you've made with beef, for example, and you're going to eat, you know, spaghetti with meat sauce, you're probably going to have a healthier, more satiating 
more nourishing meal if you have a relatively small portion of pasta and a lot of meat sauce on top of it. And I've actually done that exact transition in my own diet. But what we've done as a nation is we've told people, and this has kind of happened throughout the westernized world, that we um, shouldn't eat very much meat and that we should be eating a lot of grains and these other, you know, things like bread, you know, filler foods, bread, rice, pasta, potatoes. And we, and we've eaten a lot more of that. So our total carbohydrate consumption has gone up. Our total processed food consumption has gone up. Our consumption of animal fats and red meat and eggs has gone down. So I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're eating more to try to feel full and to feel fully nourished because we're also eating you know, again, foods like rice and pasta are fairly low in terms of how much nourishment per calorie is provided. So you don't end up feeling full, satiated, and you also don't end up feeling nourished. So your body is sort of continuing to signal you that you need to eat more. And so you do. And when you look at how many calories per person that we're eating in the United States right now per day, it is hundreds of calories higher than it was 50 years ago. So I think all of this stuff is related. Mm. And, you know, this whole idea that we've been telling people for so long, they should eat less meat. It's really misguided. And it has had some very serious downstream effects on our health. You mentioned a few times during the interview, you were a vegetarian. It's not a big secret, but it is interesting that as a rancher, for decades, you were a vegetarian. So why did you make that choice? And then why did you decide to come back around and include beef in your diet again? Yeah, I was raised an omnivore. You know, my parents were omnivores and they were really interested in health and the connection between diet and health. They always, my mom had a big garden and used to bake her own bread and make her own yogurt. So she, she was really, you know, very hands-on in terms of eating and food and cooking and baking and taught us about that. So I had this idea from really early on that if you were trying to be healthy, you know, you were going to eat real food and make as much of it yourself as possible. But they did kind of get caught up in, as so many people did in the 1970s, and this idea that fat was bad for you. And I remember this idea being talked about a lot in my household that we shouldn't eat too much fat and we shouldn't, you know, just have butter as a treat on Sundays, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I actually kind of remember, you know, the margarine coming into the house and my parents kind of saying, okay, so usually you should eat the margarine on Sundays. You can eat the butter, you know? <laughs> so they were like really focused on all this stuff. And by the time I reached college, I started to feel like probably if I wanted to be a good environmental steward and also eat the healthiest diet, I should eat very little or no meat. So you sort of fast forward, I kind of stuck with that for, you know, a decade or so. And then I started working for Bobby Kennedy Jr. in New York as an environmental lawyer. He asked me to work on the issue of meat production and concentrated animal production as an environmental issue and water quality issue. So it's at first, it's kind of reinforcing my beliefs that, you know, oh yeah, from, you know, meat is bad for the environment, basically, to summarize it briefly. And then just a couple months into the project, I realized, wow, it's so different depending on how you're doing it. It's, mm. I was going to just beautiful farms, 
like Paul Willis's farm in Iowa, which was one of the first ones that I visited. And I was seeing, you know, how his animals were le leading good lives. He was, he had a very ecologically vibrant farm. He's done this huge prairie restoration and, you know, he raises all these different kinds of heirloom tomatoes in his gardens. And, and it's a place that, you know, the, the neighbors are thrilled is there, you know? Yeah. And then in contrast to that, I was going to um, sort of the worst kind of factory farm operations in North Carolina and Missouri and seeing these, you know, very depressing kind of metal buildings with these huge waste lagoons out back, mm. you know, no, you know, no good thing was happening in terms of, <laughs> you know, the, the, the water quality was getting, you know, affected by it in a negative way. Odors were being caused. The neighbors were outraged, you know, so it, it just couldn't have been more of a contrast. Right. Um, and so I started feeling like, you know, we need to make this distinction. And the work that I was doing was trying to do that. But I stuck with my vegetarian diet for a long time. And when I married Bill Nyman, you know, CEO and founder of Nyman Ranch and rancher and, you know, someone who really was living and breathing with cattle and, and meat. And people thought I would re-examine my diet, but I, I was more and more convinced that animals were important in the food system, but it wasn't affecting my own personal feelings about what I wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. And over time that shifted very gradually because we had children. I wanted to raise them as omnivores because of how I've always believed that meat is healthy food, especially for people that are growing and developing. And, and then when I reached age 50, that's when I decided, you know, I need to make sure that what I'm eating is really supporting vibrant health. It's not just good enough to kind of maintain you know i need mm -hmm. to my i knew for you know from lots of different things personal experience and observations as well as lots of reading that my i knew my bones and i knew my muscles were going to begin to be challenged that i was going to be hard to maintain those things and that i was going to be getting you know heavier in terms of my weight if if i didn't you know really watch what i ate and be really careful which i'd never been a problem you know going up you know up to that point in my life so i started re-examining what I was eating. And I felt that meat actually would be an invaluable component, invaluable part of my diet if I wanted to have the best nutrition. And then when I started to eat meat again, which is about three years ago now, I was very surprised how much I enjoyed it right away. <laughs> like, like it was like, this is delicious. Why was I not eating this all these years? And I'm really, really glad I've reintroduced it into my diet because I feel like it's a delicious, satiating food. And I'm really surprised how much I'm enjoying cooking the foods that I grew up with, mm -hmm. things that my mother used to make, things like goulash that she's with beef goulash that she used to make, which is so delicious. And I didn't eat it for 30 years. And now I'm eating it again, preparing it for my boys and passing on that tradition to them. So it's been very satisfying and I'm really happy I decided to do it. Well, you are practicing what you preach. Yes, right? exactly. Nicolette Han Nyman, I can't thank you enough for this amazing book, Defending Beef, for spending time with me talking about it. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Bruce. These interviews are so informative to me. I'm so glad that we do them. Bruce schedules them. The reason that Bruce is always interviewing them is because basically in the division of labor in our world, he's taken it over. 
uh, to kind of schedule the interviews. And so then he interviews these people. I do occasionally, do. but mostly it's kind of become your job. Also, I edit the podcast, so it's easy yeah. for me to edit the interview while I'm editing our podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really fascinating. And Bruce does it by Zoom. You should know that these things are all done by Zoom. They are done by Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. If you'd be interested in like seeing the videos of Zoom, let us know because, you know, we could open up a Patreon account and for a fee, we can let the videos be available. Well, we could. It, it, it's they're done by Zoom because that way we find that the conversation is more natural. If you're looking at the person and they're looking at you. Uh, I did an interview a while back and this person didn't turn his camera on. And then I asked him to because at first the interview was very stilted. And, you know, you can read each other's body mm -hmm. cues, facial movements. You can see when the other person wants to talk. It's so much easier to do it as a Zoom affair. And then, of course, Bruce just rips the audio off the Zoom and yep. uses that. It's very easy. But still, nonetheless, they're always so grandly informative. Okay, our final traditional segment on the podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. What's making us happy in food this week? You go first. Sumo oranges are back, and I am thrilled. <laughs> we were in the supermarket yesterday, and I'd been I'd been really lamenting no good fruit because this is the worst time of year for fruit. The berries are all coming from South America and Mexico, and melons, forget it. And a citrus from Florida, fine. I can get my little oranges, but I forgot about sumos, and they are the best oranges ever. And they're only in the supermarkets like in January and February, and we were there. And Mark said, oh, look what's there. So I got a big big bag of sumos and they're making me happy they are very good what's making me happy is sri lankan curries <laughs> i have to say we had a sri lankan cookbook author from australia on the podcast oh what months ago six mm -hmm. weeks two months ago something you can go oh, back and check out oh, that Tama Carey. yep and she's an aussie and she has a, a collection of restaurants or just one she restaurant? has a restaurant called oh, the, restaurant. the lankan filling station okay in, in Sydney. In Sydney. And we had her on the podcast, and it got Bruce obsessed with Sri Lankan food. And he's been making Sri Lankan curries. I had a Sri Lankan fish curry last night. It was super sour. It was hot. It was delicious. We ate it over long, really long grain white rice. This white rice that Bruce buys at this Indian store that the grains are like an inch and a half long. The, rice, like is from, the rice is actually imported from Pakistan, and I've never seen basmati rice that long it was amazing it was really insane it, i love sri lankan curries check out lankan food if you're interested or that old episode of the podcast if you want to hear the interview with the author the sri lankan curries are just kind of amazing in terms of their flavor profile because it's not the traditional curry that you might think of is much more sour and it's also pretty hot mm -hmm. they're really good and coconut 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 basically what that chef told me in the interview is that sri lankan cooking would not exist sri lankan culture could not exist without the coconut oh there you go well that's our podcast for this week thank you very much for tuning in and being a part of it we appreciate your support of us because as we've said already in this podcast we are unsupported except by you our listeners and we don't even ask you for anything so just by being here and listening you are supporting us in the algorithms thank you very much for doing that if you would rate or the podcast that would be great or if you would subscribe to it that would be fabulous and we will ask one thing that is come back again and listen to another episode of cooking with bruce and mark